Hey, Corey, I've got two numbers for you today. All right, upping the ante. That's right. Not as catchy as the one number we usually do, but I think it matters. Okay, uh, what are they? The first is 5 million, and the second is 2.2 million. 2.2 million is the number of renter households who benefit from housing choice vouchers, and 5 million is the number of people in those households. So the program has truly helped a lot of people, but numbers don't tell the whole story. And today, let's look beyond the numbers and see if we can understand some of the challenges and potential in the program that aims to not just make housing affordable, but also make opportunity happen. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. The Housing Choice Voucher Program, often referred to as Section 8, is something that many people know of and maybe know a fair amount about. But there's a lot more to the story than most of us realize, especially when it comes to the intersection of housing policy and regulation and the lives of individuals and families that it affects. To help us understand this better, we are joined by somebody who has done a lot of in-depth work on the subject, Eva Rosen. Eva is an assistant professor at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University and the author of The Voucher Promise, Section 8 and the Fate of an American Neighborhood. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. All right. So in The Voucher Promise, you really you, you go beyond typical policy analysis and look at real life experience and the implications of, of Section 8. So what motivated you to write this book and, and to do the work in the way you did? Yeah, so I really wanted to study housing and understand how housing shapes all kinds of important outcomes in the world around us. So everything from health and mental health to our social relationships and job and educational prospects. And I think this is probably a little bit more obvious today than it has been in the past because COVID for a lot of people has really highlighted what an important role stable housing plays to sort of keep us all afloat. Um, but I think folks like me who study housing have a lot more work to do to make it really clear for the general public, um, for people who have never faced housing instability, just how important this really is. Um, and of course, you know, we have no right to housing in this country and we have a huge affordable housing crisis that really predated COVID um, and is only worse now. So a quarter of renters pay over half of their income in rent and only one in four renters who needs housing assistance gets it. So I was really interested in understanding what kinds of programs we have to address that. Um, and that's how I got to the voucher program, which is the biggest tenant-based federal housing subsidy program that we have. Um, and I was also interested in studying how it played out um, in, in one of our sort of more disadvantaged cities, um, which is Baltimore. It was a place where I was doing other research and when I got there, I just saw a level of poverty that I think is really unimaginable to a lot of Americans who think that that kind of poverty only exists, um, you know, overseas in developing countries. So life expectancy um, in some areas of the city in the area that I city studied is 15 years lower than it is um, in more affluent, wider areas of the city. And one in four people in Baltimore lives under the federal poverty line. And, and you can only imagine how that connects to housing, right? And all of the housing instability that, um, that we see. So I wanted to sort of connect housing more broadly to um, a lot of the issues that we've been talking about in this country over the past few years, things um, around poverty, unequal housing, patterns of economic and racial segregation in the U.S. That's... Uh... 
That is so well said. So many of these topics that that need to be touched on and that are you know major issues. And I'm so glad that you've taken a crack at this. And I think this is perfect. Um, you know, we often talk about these things um, at Freddie Mac uh, as it's a, as we have a mission of kind of serving affordable markets. But uh, um, as it relates to some of these products, it, it really gets down to getting into detail and, and getting into like a specific city. How how you've done it, I think, will be especially compelling knowing the overall market and knowing how it kind of affects individuals and things like that. Um, but maybe we can start um, and, and you can uh, speak to us and our viewers about kind of background on housing choice vouchers. Yeah. So <clears throat> vouchers were created in the seventies in the Nixon administration. And um, I think some people find that surprising. They assume that it was sort of like a social housing program, um, but actually Nixon um, and his administration were the, the ones who started this whole thing. Um, and vouchers were sort of thought to be a really economically efficient way to house the poor, since the idea is that you're relying on the private market, right? You're relying on housing stock that already exists, that private landlords own and manage. So it's sort of um, less burdensome for the government to actually administer this program, in theory. Um, and so they were started in the 70s, but they were really expanded in the 90s under Clinton. Um, and this was around the time that people, policymakers especially, began to really see public housing and especially high-rise public housing as sort of a failed project, right? We, we were sort of, the public housing stock was, um, was sort of literally crumbling, right? They, they had a big commission that determined that a lot of it was just in very poor physical condition. People were starting to realize the ways in which public housing um, contributed to um, the concentration of poverty and to racial segregation. And so people were definitely sort of interested in finding an alternative model. And so again, in the 90s, you have this moment where the assumption is that the private market can do this better, that if you um, rely on private housing stock and you offer people choice and you give them the money that they need, that they will sort of move to the places that are best for them and that that could sort of, without any real effort, deconcentrate poverty and help reduce racial segregation and also be more cost effective. Um, so that, that was sort of the original intent of the program. And um, the, way, the way that the program works um, is that a family can rent, in theory, any home that is affordable as long as the landlord's unit passes a yearly quality inspection. And so the family or the household pays a third of their income in rent, whatever that is, um, and the housing authority sends the rest of that rent money directly to the landlord each month. So as long as landlords are signing up and participating and passing these inspections, then in theory, there's plenty of housing for people to rent. And that point of, in theory, there's plenty of housing for people to rent, uh, I imagine depends a little bit on uh, if there are plenty of vouchers to go around. Yeah, so that's, that's, I would say, the first big drawback of the program, that there just aren't nearly enough to go around. And I cited that number before, but I'll say it again, because I think it's an important one. Only about one in four renters who would be eligible for any form of housing assistance gets it. So that leaves at least three quarters of renters who are not getting the assistance that they need. Um, so, so vouchers, as you guys stated at the beginning, help about 2.2 million households. Um, but there are just so many more people people who are rent burdened, who are spending too much on their homes every month. And when you're rent burdened, it, it threatens your housing stability, right? It means that in any given month, you may not be able to pay the rent. You may end up 
being filed against or getting evicted. Um, and so you're really at risk of losing your home. When you went about writing the book, so just taking the discussion down to uh, down to the neighborhoods that you spent time in, tell us about that experience of, of doing the research, of getting to know people in, in writing this book. And, and then we can come back to the program and, and how that relates. Yeah, so I felt like there was a lot of research at the time, um, sort of quantitative research measuring exactly which outcomes were working and which weren't working and where people were moving. But there wasn't a lot of on-the-ground work really trying to understand um, how people experience this program, right? What it is actually like to receive a voucher, how it changes people's lives, and also what that choice um, looks like um, on the ground to actually, once you receive that voucher, where do you move? Where do you use that voucher? How easy is it for you to find a place to live with the voucher? So um, I did what what I call in the book, I did uh, an ethnography of a policy, meaning that I really wanted to understand um, how the policy works on the ground, not just how it's meant to work um, or how we wish it would work, um, but how, how it actually unfolds on the ground and what it means to people. So um, this was in 2011. Uh, I moved to a neighborhood in Baltimore where a lot of folks were living with housing vouchers. And again, if you think back to the intent of the program, if the intent of the program at least partially was to deconcentrate poverty, to help people move to neighborhoods where they might be able to access more resources, more jobs, um, better opportunities, better schools for their kids. If you see them moving um, sort of en masse to disadvantaged, segregated neighborhoods, then you have to stop and think, okay, this is, this is already not working in the way that, that we expected it to or that we wanted it to. Um, so I moved there in an effort to try to get to know people in a little bit of a deeper way and to really understand um, not just where they where they not just sort of their stated intent and their stated preference, but to really get underneath of that um, and to understand how people ended up in this neighborhood um, and what kinds of challenges they were facing once they got there. Um, and so I, I lived there for um, a little over a year and I spent a lot of time with families, um, going on housing searches, but also doing really mundane activities like going to the grocery store, picking up the kids from school, um, running errands, that kind of thing, um, having dinner with people or going to church on Sundays in an effort to, to sort of get to know people well enough that they would trust me and would sort of share some of these details about their decision-making process that I think both require trust, but also um, these are, you know, decision-making is something that's hard hard to sort of verbalize and externalize and explain to a stranger. And so you really do have to be there and to sort of see some of that process unfold in order to fully understand exactly why it is that people aren't sort of doing what we might have expected them to from, from a purely rational perspective. So the neighborhood that I ended up in, I mean, Baltimore itself has a, has a fairly high, um, number of vouchers um, for, for a lot of complicated reasons, but the neighborhood that I ended up with, um, about 17% of the rental units are occupied by voucher holders in this neighborhood, and a third of residents are poor. Um, so it was a neighborhood where, where people were facing a lot of disadvantage, um, and those of them who had vouchers were very, very grateful to have them, and those of them who didn't were often on the wait list and were really hoping that they could get one. 
And what I did was I tried to sort of identify a couple of different groups. I started out talking to the folks who had received the voucher holders, the vouchers, and I uh, and I quickly realized that I also needed to talk to these unassisted renters, right? If most of the people who need a voucher aren't getting one, then there's something I need to understand about um, what their lives look like, how they're different, right? And, and hopefully even to catch a few of those people as they received a voucher and follow them through that process. For people that that are you know unassisted or or on a wait list do, is it clear to them that they qualify and that the and it's just a matter of waiting or do they feel like there's extra steps that need to be taken or w- what is their perspective it's a great question and and it's a real mix i think some people are very very well informed about this program they may know other friends or family in their lives who have a voucher um and there there is a lot of information available online through the local housing authority and so sort of your your most resourced most motivated people are going to go and get that information and, and learn all of that stuff. And they may also be, um, you know, I had one woman tell me that every month she would call the housing authority to check on her place on the waiting list. But I think for a lot of people, that's not possible. A lot of people don't have internet access. They're juggling so many other things in their lives um, associated with the burdens of poverty, right? Probably working several jobs, taking care of several kids, <clears throat> possibly caretaking other folks in their family. Um, and so they're they're not going to necessarily have the bandwidth to be calling the housing authority, making sure that their name is still on the list, um, making sure that, that they've um, sent back in that form every year that, that keeps them on that list. Um, so it, it's a real mix, but um, but many people did know about it. And, and there were many people who were on the waiting list for six, seven, eight years before they actually received a voucher. And that's, that is a common experience of wait lists that, um, you know, people are waiting over, over 10 years just to get this voucher. I can imagine a like, profound sense of just uh, hopelessness uh, sets in with you know, after after one year or two years of not getting it and to wait eight. Yeah, I mean, what is remarkable to me is how much hope people had. Um, a lot of folks sort of thought about it like winning the lottery. Um, and as we know, like lots of people <laughs> buy lottery tickets, even knowing that it's very unlikely that that they'll win. Um, right. But there there really is this hope that that this is something that they might someday get. Um, and, um, and, and so, yeah, it's remarkable to see how people wait that out. And I think, um, I know that we look at years ago with the, 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 the increasing cost of rents that you, you have one person who qualifies, right. And they get the unit and they're spending 30% of their income. And then there's another person or household that doesn't qualify, that doesn't get it. And not only, you know, they're, they're not likely not only not to be paying 30%, but they're probably paying, you know, oftentimes well over 50% or even higher of their income to, to have a place. So it, it certainly has an effect during that time. But also, um, you know, I imagine during a, 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 that long of a period, six plus six years, um, uh, that they need to move and things like that as well. Yeah, that's right. So, so two really important things there. One is that it is it is a deep subsidy. It, it can be worth six or seven thousand dollars a year, and for if you're living in poverty, that's a lot of money. So, the difference between getting a voucher and not getting a voucher is quite stark. Um, it it really makes a, a huge difference in people's lives. Um, and uh, the second point about the waitlist is also really important because, um, as, as you might imagine 
managing the wait list is actually a tremendous administrative burden for local public housing authorities. And this is a population that does move quite frequently. And so one of the biggest challenges with the voucher program, because it is so, uh, because it serves such a small percentage of the people that are on the wait list for it, um, is that you have these wait lists that are longer than the list of people who actually receive the benefit. And it's tremendously difficult to manage that and to, and to make sure that you have the right contact information for people whose cell phone numbers might be changing if they're if they're um, you know if they're getting um, replaceable cell phones whose addresses are changing who may not have internet access um, and so so in the case of Baltimore for example there have been a couple every couple of years um, they've sort of done a purge of the entire list and then you see everybody has to sign up again from scratch and if you're not paying attention and watching that then your name might be purged and you might not even know it and you might get kicked off that list that certainly uh, is daunting to think through just the administration of, of being on the list the list being purged having to get back on it um, that is uh, a lot to deal with um, and especially as the, that heavy burden is falling on those households. Um, uh, but uh, um, so I think that that's a picture of, of people's lives as they wait to get on. So so for those that do get the vouchers and things like that, what, what's the, can you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, for sure. So there's there was one woman who I got to know really well. I call her Vivian in the book. And um, Vivian was technically homeless before she got off the wait list. So she had spent time in homeless shelters. She had lived outside. Um, when she got the voucher, she was living on her sister's couch. Um, and, and that actually is homelessness when you're living doubled up with another family. Um, so she was able to get the voucher and she, she quite literally described it as like winning the lottery. Um, and to the earlier point, um, it is a lottery, right? Because you can qualify and still not receive the voucher. Um, again, because there are so many people who, um, who should get it, but, um, there aren't enough subsidies. So, um, so she, it just really changed her life. I mean, she was able to move off to her sister's couch for one. She was able to move into a, a small apartment. Um, and the big thing for her was that she had a couple of years earlier lost custody of her two twin boys. Um, and so once she was able to show that she had this stable home, um, it, it allowed her to actually help get get custody of her kids again. So that was really just very transformational for her. Um, you know, again, having a, having a stable home is at the root of so much, but it's also part of our legal system and part of the way that we can demonstrate that we are fit parents, right, is to be able to provide a home for our kids. Um, <clears throat> so that was really big, but you know, other, other families, um, I saw it changed their lives in, I think equally important, but perhaps more mundane ways, like being able to go to the market that had fresh fruits and vegetables instead of just sort of buying pantry goods, right. Or buying fast food. Right. Um, and, um, and certainly that, that story of overcrowding is quite common. Um, people are much less likely to end up homeless once they have that voucher, um, so, so the biggest, um, the biggest difference in the way people spend money is, um, is to buy more and healthier food. Um, and that those are findings from a big quantitative study, but I certainly saw that play out on the ground as well. So what about for, for those who then, you know, when they receive their vouchers, the, uh, the experience of, of finding an, an apartment and, uh, receptivity to, uh, using the vouchers? Uh, from from the landlord perspective or from the property owner's perspective? 
This is where it starts to get um, to get tricky again. Um, so it can be really, really hard for people to find a place to live, and th- and there's there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, for starters, um, rental housing is not affordable. Rental housing is not available in all neighborhoods, right? And so that's already going to reduce the supply to some degree. And then even if you look at the units that would um, that would uh, hypothetically qualify. Um, of course, the landlord um, is a is a player in this process, and so um, there was one woman I met, Edie, who had been on the wait list for I think seven or eight years. Um, she had been born in public housing, but left public housing because it was not a great environment for her. Um, and and again, she waited for for years to get off the list. She finally gets off the list, and her big dream. She's one of these people who is like calling the housing authority every month. She's totally on top of it. She knows what all the rules are and she wants to use her voucher in the suburbs. Um, And of course, as long as she can find an affordable unit, she can do that. And there are plenty of affordable units in the kinds of areas that she was looking at. But what would happen is um, she would go out to visit a place. And as soon as she said she had a voucher, the landlord would turn her away and just say, oh, I, I don't accept vouchers here. Um, and that's a really common experience and it can be, you know, it can be a combination of things. It can be stigma associated specifically with the voucher where landlords assume that voucher holders um, might not be as good tenants for whatever reason as as market rate tenants, whether that's because they have larger, and these are all stereotypes, but I'll repeat them here. Um, landlords think that they may have larger families, that they may have more visitors, that they might be noisy or cause more damage to the home. Um, and these are sort of all stereotypes that, you know, we associate with um, in this country, right? We associate with the poor and with welfare recipients, right? So it's not particularly surprising, but, um, you know, there's not a ton of evidence to back this up either, of course. Um, And in fact, quite the opposite. Um, A lot of of people would theorize that someone who waited on a wait list for eight years to receive this huge huge subsidy might actually be especially respectful and thoughtful about their home. And certainly that that I think would have been the case with Edie. But um, so it could be stigma related to the voucher. There's also a lot of racial stigma Um, in Baltimore, as in a lot of other cities, the voucher program is predominantly African-American. Um, and, and landlords sort of mix up voucher status with race. Um, and so it's, it's a bit hard to separate how much of this is racial discrimination and how much of it is voucher discrimination. But, you know, for Edie, it doesn't matter which it is. It just matters that she's getting turned away from all these homes where she really wants to live. And, and what we see nationwide is that about 30% of voucher holders um, are not able to successfully lease up using their voucher. And they get to the end of that time period, which in most places is 90 or 180 days. And, um, and they have to give the voucher back. Right. Um, so, so it, it, it's sort of profound to think about such a deep subsidy that help that would help people so, um, so much in terms of the amount of money that they actually are unable to successfully use it and have to have to turn it back um, to the housing authority. And, and this is where I think the, the role of landlords really starts to become apparent. So did you spend time as part of the the book interviewing uh, property owners and property managers? 
Yeah, exactly. And and I didn't set out to do it at the beginning. I really thought I was going to be focused on uh, on renters. Um, but what I realized is that landlords were this key part of the story, um, especially when it comes to um, voucher holders, but also more broadly, when we think about rental housing markets, I think we, we, we've studied a lot um, you know, there's, there is a literature out there around racial steering in mortgage markets. Um, and I think our understanding of the role that landlords play in steering renters is a little bit um, newer. And so really what would happen is I would ask families, well, how did, how did you end up here? How did you find this house, right? How did you come to this neighborhood? And they would say, oh, well, you know, the landlord was standing outside of the voucher office when I went to go sign my documents. And, um, and you know, when I went to the voucher briefing, right, to learn about how to use my voucher. And the landlord was just standing there and he offered me a ride up to this property. And, you know, I, I wouldn't normally have ended up in Park Heights in this neighborhood um, because it doesn't have the greatest reputation. But, you know, I didn't have a car and this guy offered me a ride. And, and then I went and I saw the unit and it had been, you know, gorgeous new granite countertops, um, just a much higher sort of quality in many cases than, than, um, than people were used to um, in the non-voucher market, right? Because they do have to pass these inspections. And because landlords who have properties in neighborhoods like Park Heights, um, I think know that they have to do a little bit um, of extra work to uh, attract tenants there. So what happens from the landlord's perspective is that um, the rent ceiling, the maximum amount of rent that they can charge through the voucher program is set at the metropolitan level. So it's averaging not just rents across the city of Baltimore, but it's including the suburbs all the way um, you know, into Maryland, into some of the richest counties in the country. So it's really sort of inflating the median rent um, as compared to um, what a typical two bedroom would actually go for in a neighborhood like Park Heights. So then do you get a scenario where in in like the neighborhood you're talking about, a rent could be a bit higher, but uh, the voucher is not going to go as far. So uh, the voucher goes farther in in that neighborhood, but would not go nearly as far in in a neighborhood, maybe farther out in the suburbs with, uh, you know, higher income, higher rents. Exactly. So in a neighborhood like Park Heights, a landlord can make more per month through the voucher program than they would um, on the open market. They can maybe make a couple hundred dollars more, even $300 more, for example, by renting to a voucher tenant. Whereas if that same voucher tenant tried to use their voucher um, in Roland Park, which is in the city or out in the suburbs, um, they that voucher might not actually cover the full cost of the rent in that neighborhood. Um, So what this creates is sort of an incentive for landlords to attract voucher tenants into disadvantaged neighborhoods like Park Heights because it allows them to earn a premium above what they could otherwise rent that apartment for in the open market. And there's another piece to it, too, which is beyond the premium, um, the voucher program provides a very stable, reliable source of rent. The majority of that rent is coming directly from the housing authority every single month. So the landlord doesn't have to worry about whether or not the tenant can pay. And in a disadvantaged neighborhood where people may not have a steady income, right, this is a real actually source of concern for landlords. A lot of their tenants aren't paying all their rent on time every month. So it sort of, it really does offer this incentive in more disadvantaged neighborhoods for landlords to use a voucher program. 
Um, but then simultaneously, they still have that disincentive to use it in uh, in wealthier, more affluent neighborhoods. Um, and, and this, I think, is a big part of the reason why you're seeing this sort of push or pull of voucher tenants into disadvantaged neighborhoods um, and um, an exclusion from more advantaged neighborhoods. So the uh, the property owners that you spoke to and, and that uh, the, the uh, residents that you uh, came to know, what were the types of properties? Was it more small like mom and pop owner operators or, or did you see some like larger uh, property owners, institutional owners that were providing housing? Some of both. It's a real mix in Baltimore. So you do have a very significant number of smaller landlords who own, you know, under 30 properties. There's a lot of single family homes in that housing stock. Um, and, and they do tend to make different kinds of decisions than the more institutional property owners do. But, but you do also have the folks who own the big buildings, the high rises. Um, and, and there's a lot of Section 8 that ends up getting, getting concentrated in those kinds of buildings as well. With things like uh, the tax credit program, it is like a, a, a obviously a very different program, but uh, the, there can be you know rules set up by localities or states to to try to um, create incentives that they want, like to to put people in areas of opportunity. Do, do you know if there's with a known issue? It seems so simple when you say it, but I'm sure but I'm sure it's a very complex issue. Um, are there are there efforts to solve that? Yeah, so it's definitely in conversation. I mean, I the voucher program itself, most explicitly, the goal of the voucher program, and if you ask any local PHA, what is this program for? They will say, you know, this is a housing stability program. It's an anti-poverty program. It's designed to keep people um, with roofs over their heads. Um, it's not designed to promote uh, residential mobility. Um, even if when it was designed, that was something that policymakers hoped that it would do. And so I, I do think there is this view that there's a trade-off. And, and I would say this is not necessarily true, but there is a view that there's a trade-off. If we make it a mobility program, we help less people. If we... Um, if we want it to be a strict anti-poverty program, then we can help more people because we won't have to give them as much money to get them to, to different kinds of neighborhoods. Now, there's some research suggesting that that's not necessarily true, but but I say that because I think it, it is the perception. The exception to this is if you look around the country, there are 20 or so mobility programs that use vouchers um, as their um, intervention. But these mobility programs, and, and I'm thinking of the Thompson program in, in Baltimore or um, the, inclu the Inclusive Communities Project in uh, Dallas, right? These are programs that came out of lawsuits. So the Walker case in Dallas, the um, the, the Thompson case in Baltimore, these were um, anti-segregation lawsuits um, where there were consent decrees that, that said that the housing authority had um, contributed to racial segregation, both in public housing. Um, well, I guess it, it initially it was in public housing, but the remedy for these cases um, was to create vouchers specifically with mobility in mind. And those vouchers can only be used in, quote, opportunities neighborhoods, right? In neighborhoods that have some degree of racial integration, that have a certain income threshold. 
Um, and so the idea there is to sort of nudge people into neighborhoods where they might find more opportunities, where they might um, experience less disadvantage. So I think that those mobility programs can certainly um, provide us a lesson in what we would or could do if we wanted to the voucher program to fulfill some of its um, kind of latent mobility goals. Um, but it, it would certainly require a bit of a reorientation as far as um, what, what we officially want the program to do. Do you still run into, uh, in those cases, uh, the property owners not being open to accepting vouchers or being reluctant and maybe picking someone who doesn't have vouchers over someone who does? Yeah. You know, interestingly, we see that a little bit less with the mobile, a little bit less resistance, I believe, with some of the mobility programs. And that is in large part because the mobility programs often come with outreach to landlords and education and resources. And so as soon as you offer um, landlords a caseworker, right, who they can call if they're if they are having trouble with a tenant, right, they're going to be much more open to actually renting through that program. But yes, there is still resistance. Um, and you're reminding me of, of something that I haven't said yet, said yet, which is that there is no federal law um, banning discrimination against voucher holders. There are a hodgepodge of state and local laws that are called source of income discrimination protection laws. So source of income being um, that voucher subsidy. Um, and if there is a source of income protection law, it basically says that a landlord cannot turn you away solely because you are paying with that voucher. Um, and so Baltimore City and Baltimore County now have source of income protection laws, but they didn't have them when I was doing this fieldwork. And most places in the country do not have those laws. So in other words, in most places in the country, landlords are perfectly within their rights to say, I will not accept you as a tenant, even though you are qualified, um, because I don't want your voucher. Um, and that is that is their right to do so currently in this country in most most places. Right. So when talking about the the process for uh, for renters uh, applying for vouchers, and it, it seems like there's a level of expertise required. Right. Is there a similar level of expertise required for the uh, the property owner and property manager? to be able to accept vouchers and work with the program? Yeah, that's that's a really important question. And, and I have, since writing this book, done quite a bit of work um, with landlords, um, with a colleague of mine. And, and we've done this in four different cities. Um, and basically, the number one reason that landlords cite for not wanting to engage and participate with the voucher program is the bureaucratic um kind of nightmare, you could say, <laughs> according to them, um, bureaucratic red tape um, of, um, of dealing with the housing authority and of getting their rent approved, of passing the inspection, of getting everything set up so they can actually get paid for this tenant. Um, it, it can be pretty burdensome and, and time consuming for landlords. And so I, I wouldn't necessarily call it expertise, but, but certainly yet yeah, technical um, kind of experience, right? It's it's not it's not as straightforward as if you're just renting um, on the private market completely. So it, it does take a little bit of effort. I think the the payoff, right, is is what I mentioned before. The payoff is a really reliable rental payment. Um, and in some cases perhaps a little bit more than you would have otherwise gotten. And so for the most part, once landlords realize that that is the case, I think they tend to be very happy with the voucher program. But um, but it really does 
depend on where the property is that they're renting and what we call the counterfactual tenant. So who is the tenant that they would rent to if they weren't renting to a voucher holder? And if that counterfactual tenant is um, a middle income person with a very steady job who isn't likely to be late on rent, um, then they may prefer to rent to that market rate tenant. But if that counterfactual tenant is someone who's very poor, who might lose their job at any day, or who can't actually afford the rent because they're too poor, then the voucher tenant sort of becomes more attractive. So it's interesting, like you said, the the how the landlords might view this and, and the multiple considerations. Are there other uh, you know considerations as a part of this that that affect uh, the program, whether it's uh, data challenges or, or um, um, other things related to screening, things like that? Yeah, I think that one thing that surprised me that I would call a data challenge um, is that, um, you know, it's easy, I think, as researchers to look at all these ways in which the program is not meeting some of its goals, right? Um, it's not it's not serving all of the people that it could. It's not promoting mobility. It's repeating a lot of the patterns of racial segregation that we see in the broader housing market. These are all very negative things. And I think it's very easy to want to kind of trash the whole thing and say, oh, gosh, this just isn't working at all. But I think what was surprising and important to me and something I wouldn't have fully understood if I were not really living in this neighborhood, watching people go through these motions on a day-to-day basis, is that for them, this program is incredibly valuable. It is life-changing. It is, um, you know, the thing that that got them um, out from, from sleeping underneath the bridge, right? It's the thing that allowed Vivian to get her kids back in her custody. It's, it is an enormous financial subsidy. Um, and when you ask people, you know, did you feel like you had choice in where you ended up? Like, is this where you wanted to be? There's a much more complicated story. I mean, yes, they will tell you about the landlord who sort of, um, not coerced, but maybe, maybe cajoled them a little bit into seeing an apartment that they were a house that they wouldn't have otherwise looked at. But what they'll say is, oh no, this was the first time in my life that I chose where I wanted to live. This was the first time that I had the opportunity to make a choice. And so there is something to me very profound about that discrepancy between the way things look from a bird's eye view as researchers and policymakers, where things look like they're really not working the way they should, but then on the ground, people are reporting how tremendously beneficial this is is to them. And I, I think we can't ignore that. I think there's something very important there to hold on to. So let's look ahead a little bit. So we did talk about some of the, uh, some of the challenges and, and some of the, uh, the positive impacts of this. What do you see coming in the future? What, what's the debate about the program now? Where, where, where might we see some change over time? Yeah, I think there are, there are a number of sort of, um, policy adjustments that are certainly under conversation. Um, and whether or not, you know, they become implemented really depends on where um, the people making these decisions decide they want the program to go. But certainly there are a number of things under conversation. One of the big ones is related to this issue that I talked about, where landlords sort of have an incentive to rent to voucher holders in disadvantaged neighborhoods and a disincentive to rent to them in wealthier neighborhoods. And and there is actually a, a, a fix for this that HUD has um, implemented in 16 or so 
cities around the country. Um, and it's called small area fair market rent. And basically, again, the fair market rent is um, the, the base at which the payment standards are set. They're set around fair market rent. And so if instead of calculating fair market rent at that entire metropolitan level, that's going to sort of average a very disparate set of rents, um, you can average it at the local level, at the zip code level, for example. And this is something that we do here in D.C. It's called neighborhood-based FMR. Um, and basically what it means is that um, if you want to rent an apartment in Georgetown, you're going to have uh, much more money. You're going to have around $3,000. Um, and if you want to rent um, that same apartment, but in another neighborhood, say Eckington, you're only going to have about $1,700 to do it. And really what that means is just that they're calibrating those rent ceilings um, to the local markets that they're in. So instead of overpaying landlords in disadvantaged neighborhoods, they're paying them exactly what that what that apartment should be going for. Um, and simultaneously, they are allowing voucher holders to move to more affluent neighborhoods if they want to by, um, by making the voucher worth the amount that an apartment actually costs in that neighborhood. What, what, is the, what are you seeing then in, in those 16 markets where that's in place? Uh, are you seeing different, uh, different outcomes? Yeah, so, so the research is still limited. It's, it's, it's only been around for a few years, but there is some really interesting research on D.C. in particular that shows that tenants do, in fact, move to new neighborhoods when you implement these neighborhood-based um, FMRs, um, and, um, and there are more units available to them. Interestingly, though, it looks like there aren't necessarily new landlords that have entered the program. They're the same landlords, but are but they're renting properties in new neighborhoods that they hadn't been renting before. So that's an interesting twist on it. And there's a lot more work to be done, um, I think, to to learn how to to make this policy work in a number of different markets. But it does seem like um, a possible solution um, to this problem of creating these these misaligned incentives. That makes a ton of sense. I know that we uh, in in research here at Freddie Mac have also looked at small area fair market rents. We we um, are asked to you know look at the affordability of the business that we do um, and target areas that, that are in need. And uh, I can just say that from our perspective as well, when you look across a full broad market, things that are in lower cost neighborhoods just automatically qualify. And uh, and um, and obviously those aren't you know, correlated with areas of opportunity or, uh, or all of those things. So I'm hopeful from a number of different perspectives that things like that get uh, utilized more. So that's some of the research that we do. Um, I'm always, I'm fascinated to hear about it from your perspective, because uh, you become so engaged in, um, in the, in the day to day of it, because you're, you're living it. Like you said, you literally lived um, uh, studying this um, for a year. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, in um, you know the personal impacts to to you, and I, I, you've you've illustrated well, you know the the individual people, but just how you see it so clearly, maybe, and and then you bring it back as a professor, and and how 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 that translates to to are the students able to see that. Yeah, so students are are really interested in in this policy, um, and it, it, you know it takes a minute, I think, at the beginning to explain to them why it matters. Most of them have not heard of Section Eight before; they've maybe heard of public housing, um, but I think that a lot of students um, are attracted to studying public policy because they really see it as a tool to make the world better. And of course, it is a tool to make the world world better. Um, but but I think policy is so much more than that. It's 
you know, it's something that shapes our world in in also quite detrimental ways at time times, right? And and when it comes to housing, like redlining is the example that that pops out to me. But I think the bottom line is that policy can do good, it can do bad, it can do all kinds of things that it didn't intend to do. And vouchers are a really great example of a policy that does all three of those things. It does good things, it does not so good things, um, and it does some things it didn't intend to do. Um, right? It, it helps millions of people keep a roof over their head. If you ask them again, families talk about this as, as like winning the lottery, but they don't do nearly as much as they could do. They repeat a lot of the patterns, a lot of the negative sort of segregation patterns that we see in the rest of the market. So I think this example really helps students understand um, how complicated it can be to try to solve these types of problems and how careful we have to be when implementing policy um, and how easy it is to see unintended effects that, um, that we might not have anticipated. Eva, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's a fantastic discussion, and, and we certainly learned a lot, and, and I hope our listeners did as well. Thank you. Really a pleasure to be here. The Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production manager, Melissa Bosma, editor, Stephanie Heston, and audio producer, Dalton O'Cola. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddiemac.com research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.